This is a Federal News Network podcast. For hackers, Internet-connected medical devices have become an attractive target. Compared to computers, they tend to have more vulnerabilities that stay unpatched. But Congress is now considering legislation that would give the FDA more authority to require medical device manufacturers to make them more secure. John Pescatori is director of Emerging Security Trends at the Sands Institute. He talked with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about those weaknesses and how to mitigate their risks in the meantime. There's a long history behind this issue. In the medical world, uh, nothing used to have internet connectivity. In fact, it had very proprietary network connectivity. But Starting, boy, close to more than 15 years ago, uh, most things started having some form of internet connectivity, including medical devices. Well, when you're just connected to a wire, you don't really worry about what bad guys might do and break in. And uh, once, once you started connecting to the internet, you really do have to worry about that. Another thing is in the medical equipment world, the uh, Food and Drug Administration for many years has had a certification program. So if anything was to be used for medical purposes, actually for humans or animals, it had to be inspected for quality and safety, which back then meant we don't want to electrocute the person or if it's an infusion pump, don't want to let it pump too hard or start pumping backwards and remove all their blood. So the medical world's had a certification program that really did not address security, it really addressed safety. The bad part about that certification program was it was very complex, to go through, pretty expensive for the manufacturers, Um, but that's good. Things should be safe. But that complexity meant once they brought a product to market, they didn't want to change the product because if they changed the product, they had to go through, they thought they they had to go through the certification process Mm -hmm. again. So once these products started having software in them, you know, think of an infusion pump or an MRI machine or a CAT scanner these days, the issue of patching came about. All software is built with vulnerabilities. Mankind has never built more than one line of code that didn't have at least one vulnerability. Um, So the manufacturer said, we can't patch our devices. Yes, we know they're vulnerable out there and anybody could find this vulnerability. And since it's connected to the Internet, exploit it. But the quality and um, safety certification process means by the time we patched it and got it through certification, there'd be another patch out. So we can't do it. it. 15 years ago in 2006, the FDA put out guidance saying, no, you can patch for security reasons and not have to go through certification. But uh, it's taken these 15 years before they've put in some oomph behind it. So that's a short reason is, you know, most of the medical uh, equipment was first built, not being exposed to the Internet, didn't have to worry about software and patches. And then for a long time thought they couldn't patch. And uh, we're finally starting to see that change. It's going to take a long time, I think, is the bottom line before some of the fundamentals here start to change in, in terms of the, the, the attack surface of these devices. And so it sounds like until then, there's it's really on the end users, the healthcare system operators, to mitigate some of these vulnerabilities. What what can they do in that area? And specifically for our audience, I, I don't know the degree to which you've watched federal users specifically in DOD and VA. Are, are they doing any better? Well, first, um, there is an important thing they can do before we get to the shielding of these vulnerable things. The security CISOs and the government agencies that that are um, buying medical equipment need to make sure they get involved in the procurement process, that the security team is represented. There's always, almost always, competitive procurements for these things. And to make sure that security requirements are in the RFP and are highly weighted evaluation criteria is really key. And the FDA action will help force some of that. But for the CISOs and the 
government uh, that have medical responsibilities. Really, that's first is first thing is key. So the next thing we come to is what we've done historically is if you have something vulnerable, you shield it away from the danger. You put it in a separate network segment. The very first thing is never connect anything to the internet that really, really doesn't need to be connected. So what we found was a lot of vendor remote maintenance might happen over the internet. A lot of times IT said, oh, we can tell that into this thing so we can do a status check on the network, make sure it's working when somebody complains. So we'll, we'll leave that open. So the very first thing is to make sure that they are in separate network segments, all the medical devices, and that the um, what creates the segment is essentially a firewall that implements the old school policy of no connection is allowed unless it's explicitly authorized versus let's just try to stop bad stuff, the negative security model. It's got to be the positive security model. Only connections we know we trust can come through. Nothing else gets through. Because when you think about it, most medical machinery really doesn't need to be communicated to a lot. And if there does have to be uh, remote internet connections to uh, these these segmented networks, that they all have multi-factor authentication. So the biggest risk today is attackers getting somebody with privileges password, getting admin access or getting a password on a VPN account and getting in remotely. That doesn't happen if you're using strong authentication, which has been a requirement for remote access and for many years, what we've seen, unfortunately, both in government and private industries, very slow movement away from passwords. Yeah, and at the risk of stating the obvious here, the, the, the allure for an attacker to get into one of these devices is solely as a foothold into a broader enterprise network, I would assume. A, a dialysis machine on their own is not that interesting to a hacker. Well, you know, over time, we've always seen a progression of hacking. The first is just people who are interested in seeing what they can do um, and break into things. And then invariably, they cause accidents to happen just because they got in and touched the machine. It stops working. Then you have denial of service. So one risk is denial of service. So, for instance, at the, what is it, Greenland right now, nationwide, had an attack where they can't bring up the, the machinery again. And it really wasn't an attack against the, the, the medical care systems. It was you know just an attack. Then we saw a wave of, yeah, I want to break into whatever I can because then I'm going to steal identity information. Um, and I can sell those uh, those names and those health IDs and the information I find. Turned out on the hacker markets, that type of information was more valuable than the credit card information because the financial industry had put a lot of controls in place and was getting tougher to break into. But if I had all that information on some medical forms you filled out that included uh, you know your address and meant lots of information, I could then go spoof your identity and perhaps answer your security questions and get your password and away I go in identity theft. So yeah, it was true that over the past several years, a lot of it's been about getting a foothold. But when you see ransomware attacks, you know, basically those are attacks where they say, I'm going to cr- I've crashed your systems and I won't let you bring them back to you pay me. And that's a big fear with attacks against this medical equipment because, you know, bringing down all the CAT scans and MRI machines in an entire hospital and holding them for ransom um, that, that's that's life and safety uh, impacting, not just financial. All right. So in the last couple of minutes here, let's talk about the possible long-term fixes here. Understand there's legislation in the FDA reauthorization bill that, that would do some things to give FDA some new regulatory authority over cyber specifically. How would that work? How long would it take to actually make a difference here? Well, I think that will take time because what, what the FDA is doing is saying when manufacturers, when you apply to get certified, you must include this security information. 
And we will be evaluating that as part of approving the certification. So that will take time. More immediately, there's kind of two things. We already talked about the what I call the keep the bad guys out, the segmentation. The other real thing is more quickly noticing when the bad guys do get in. It's kind of like ants in your house. You, know, you can do everything you want to keep the ants or the termites out. Sooner or later they get in, the quicker you notice, the less damage there is. So there's a lot of techniques, um, things called threat hunting, tools and techniques to quickly discover something anomalous on your network or something that looks like something malicious happening in the, amidst all those medical machineries. Another is uh, we push at SANS is called purple teaming, which is where many companies have what they call a red team, try to break in, do penetration testing. And the blue team is the defenders who are trying to keep them out. Well, if they sort of work together and the blue team learns from the red team and, and comes with, with better defenses and the red team then tries better ways of breaking in once they understand the defenses, Companies and, and agencies will improve their security of those networks a lot, a lot more quickly and be able to find things, you know, time to detect in hours or days instead of months. Getting back to FDA's regulatory authority here, if, if they are going to re- require some sort of cyber hardening as part of the as part of the certification process going forward, it strikes me that it's probably important that they do that in a way that manufacturers can keep up with future threats and make changes as needed without having to go through the onerous certification process all over again, going back to what you said at the beginning. You know, the uh, NSA and the, the Australians and the British and several other countries just put out a cybersecurity advisory reminding everybody that the vast majority of attacks are enabled by lacks of basic security hygiene. What the NSA uh, put out years ago and turned into what's these days called the critical security controls There's these sort of eight to 10 things that are very well known, should be done in all equipment, can be baked into most. We're finally starting to see that happen in Windows, for example, and the cellular phone operating systems. So I think as long as the manufacturers and and the FDA guidance is sticking, is starting with that, with the basics of security, build security in such that uh, you're minimizing the attack surface, you're making it a lot harder for the bad guys, but really not that harder for the good guys to use the equipment. So I think they're taking a good approach there. That's the start. Um, of course, what always happens is once you raise the bar to the basic level, then the real sophisticated attacks come about. And that's where things like threat hunting come into play. Well, last question, John. I can't think of too many other examples, maybe you can, of, of federal agencies that that have any kind of regulatory authority over the private sector in terms of imposing cyber requirements on, on IoT devices. If FDA does this well, could it provide some lessons in, in how to harden IoT devices outside of the medical industry? Yeah, I, th- I think it can. I mean, when you look at um, all agencies that do procurements can put requirements in RFPs and point to industry specifications or industry standards and the like. For Internet of Things devices, you know, things in smart buildings, for example, government buildings are being built with internet connected heat and, or uh, high voltage AC and power and elevator and video systems that are often vulnerable. So yeah, there's not, uh, GSA doesn't have yet uh, security requirements going in the smart building type contracts. But I think um, that's very key. I was on a committee advising an incoming Congress about 10, 15 years ago. And that's one of the things we recommended that all government procurements for anything, because everything's coming with software, everything is vulnerable can be attacked, cybersecurity considerations be included in all the procurement language. John Pescatori, Director of Emerging Security Trends at the SANS Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, 
I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.